Good morning. morning. Happy Lord's Day. My name is Peter, and I'm one of a member and a pastor here at Bethany Baptist Church. It's my delight to bring God's word to all of us. I haven't been up here ever since the beginning of this year, and that's probably because I'm a non-stop pastor, which I thank God for, and I'm excited, and I'm feeling the weight of this heavy responsibility to bring God's word. Today, we're going to finally finish what we started last year in September, a mini-part series on Malachi. So we're going to be preaching, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Malachi. And friends, if you're visiting for the first time, I understand how you might feel. I was in your seats about three and a half years ago when I first began to attend. Feel free to get up anytime you need to use the restroom. They're behind these two doors on your right, on my left, both on the first and second floor. If you have never seen a Bible or have never read the Bible, or if you're not just familiar with the Bible, you're not out of place when you open this Bible. Big numbers are chapter numbers. Small numbers are verses. So when I say chapter 3, verse 6, it's big number 3 and small number 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard, black hardcover Bible underneath the seat in front of you. So feel free to grab that and turn to page 850 with me. That's page 850. We're going to be camping in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, through the rest of the book. You can look up if you're there. The words that we're about to read are the most important words in our gathering. Anytime the word of God is read, God's word converts sinners, awakens the church, and preserves the saint. So listen carefully to our words, to the words of our God from Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, through the rest of the book, to hear God's word. Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way says, Lord of armies, see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. 
Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You've said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit witness prosper, wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I'll have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will see again the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve him. Because look, the day is coming burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I've commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will return or he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. May the words of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word might help us to look to Christ and to treasure Christ. Awaken our souls to treasure Christ supremely over all. That knowing Christ is supreme gain. Knowing Christ is better than owning a better car, than having a spouse, having children, not having children, not having spouse. Help us to think about the gain of knowing Christ and help us to remember the instruction of Moses today as we look at Malachi chapter three and four. In Christ's name, amen. I abhor standing in lines. I hate lines. If I didn't work at the bank, I would almost never walk into a bank. That's what I tell my clients. Have you ever waited in big lines? More than that, have you ever observed people waiting in line because you're bored or because maybe you're weird like me? You're just staring at people and trying to decipher them and understand them as they wait in line. There's a lot of things that people do as they wait in line. Some are shaking their legs like crazy. I know at least one of you who shake their legs in our congregation like crazy. Maybe they're on their phones 
a lot of people are on their phones. And you can tell a lot about what they're doing on their phones even as they scroll. If they scroll fast and stop, scroll fast and stop, they're on Instagram. <laughs> if they're scrolling really slowly, you can tell that they're reading something. Or perhaps they're shaking their legs, they're rolling their eyes, and they're looking up. They're late to something. They've got to go. They're frustrated. You can tell a lot about people as they wait in line. Or maybe you're like a friendly golden retriever making friends everywhere and anywhere you go. Some of you are like that. But more than waiting in lines, we as Christians are all waiting for Christ to return. Aren't I right? That we ought to wait for Christ, our King, to return. We're hoping for that day, and our hope is anchored for that day, because when he comes, he will wipe away our tears. Every heart that's broken will be amended. We're waiting for that day. Is there an inappropriate way to wait for Christ to return? In other words, is there an appropriate way to wait? I'm thinking about my bank. A lot of people come to see a teller to do their transactions. But there are some who are waiting in line who create chaos, riots. They're instigating the line, and then a bomb goes off. There is a mob waiting to see a teller. Inappropriate words and phrases are hurled over the tellers. And we have witnessed inappropriate way to wait in line. How can we wait appropriately? for our Lord Christ to return. When that final judgment will come, how can we wait appropriately? The main goal of today's sermon text is, remember the instruction of Moses so that you appropriately wait for God's judgment. So in order for us to appropriately wait, not inappropriately, but appropriately, we need to be remembering the instruction of Moses. That's the main goal from Malachi chapter 3 and 4. Remember the instruction of Moses so that you may appropriately wait for God's judgment. And in order for us to remember, God gives us motivations. Why should we remember? There are two reasons. You will be envied by all the nations. That's chapter 3 verses 6 through 12. Why should you remember? Because by remembering, you will be envied by all the nations. Verses 6 to 12. Second motivation or second reason, because you will see the difference on the day of the Lord. Because you will see the difference on the day of the Lord. That's chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. So verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. Now, you might be wondering, if you caught on to uh, the scripture references, that I've left verses 4 through 6. Am I denying God's word? I think not. The main goal of sermon text, the sermon text is derived from verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. The book of Malachi, I'm sure you, you remember, are divided into six disputes. So God is making an accusation against his people. And they're saying, what? That doesn't make sense. So there's a dispute going on between God and his people. And there's six times of that in the book of Malachi. And that ends in chapter 4, verse 3. And chapter 4, verse 4 through 6 is a conclusive statement 
So it's more of chapter one through four. Do all of this, chapter four, because, or therefore, remember. There are two commands, right? Look at verse four and verse five. What are the two commands that you see? First is to remember. Second is to look. Yes. Remember and look. Remember the instruction of Moses and look. Because I'm going to send prophet Elijah and he will turn things around. So the first motivation to remember Moses' instruction is that you'll be envied by all the nations. That's in verse 12. Look down with me to chapter 3, verse 12. It reads, Then all the nations will consider you, what? Fortunate. Why should you remember instruction of Moses? Because at the end of the day, all the nations will consider you fortunate. It's like when I have my kids and I give a candy to um, my firstborn and my secondborn doesn't get the candy. He's looking at me and he's looking at his older brother and saying, oh man, I envy my brother. He is fortunate and I am not. At the end of the day, you will be called and be considered fortunate by all the nations. The, all the nations will consider you fortunate. Receiving a public recognition at your work, maybe. It's something along that line. But this doesn't happen in a vacuum. So are the nations right now considering us as fortunate? I mean, think about your interactions with a non-believing friend or non-believing coworkers. Do they think that you are fortunate to be a Christian? Or when you share your values, when you share your worldview, what kind of response do you get? Or perhaps you don't even share your worldview, or you don't share thoughts about truth at work. You should. But let's say you do, and I hope you do. What is the typical response that you get? What might be true for you is not true for and they don't consider you fortunate. They don't consider us fortunate. But the, at the end of the day, when the final judgment comes, we will be considered fortunate. They will look at us and say, ah, I should have, I ought have, but I didn't. That's our destination. The question is, how does this happen? We know the end game, but... How does that happen? Look down with me to verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. It reads, Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Question. Has Israel been righteous in keeping God's commands? Answer? Do they deserve God's blessing? Answer? Do they deserve God's destruction? Answer? Yes. They deserve destruction from the Lord. But look at verse 6. Why are they not destroyed? Because what? Because... The Lord have not, yes. The ground by which we are not destroyed is not ourselves, but it's the Lord. 
one of the attributes of the Lord, that is unchangingness of the Lord. In a more theological language, it's called the doctrine of divine immutability. The fact that God does not change. That's the ground by which we are not destroyed. What is the reason why you're not destroyed? Not because you're doing really well, not because you've had a really good week, but because the Lord has not changed. Pointing to the fact that the Lord does not change. Let's think about that for a brief moment. The doctrine of divine immutability. In other words, God in his essence, will, and knowledge do not change. God in his essence, will, and knowledge does not change. Divine immutability, God not changing, is what makes God, God. Wait, Peter, are you saying that if God changes, that he is ceasing to be God? Exactly. If God changes, he is not God. And you might not trust me. There's someone who's smarter than I named Herman Bobink. He says, quote, if God were not immutable, he would not be God. He says again, the difference between the creator and his creatures hinges on the contrast between being and becoming, close quote. And you might be thinking, wait, hold on. So in order for God to be God, he can't change. Why is that? Let me give you a reason. Think about yourselves. Do you change? Yes? Consider 20 years ago, have you changed? Praise God, you have changed. I mean, think about 20 years ago, how you looked, how you spoke, what you were dressing. I mean, things have changed and praise God that you are changing. Praise God that I'm changing. You and I, you and I are changing either for worse or better. You and I as creatures are bound to change. We can't help but to change. It is inevitable. But God never does. The reason why God cannot change is because if he adds or if he is changing, he's either adding or subtracting. If he adds, that means he wasn't perfect before, but because he added, he's now perfect. If he subtracts, that means he wasn't perfect. In order for him to be perfect, he needs to subtract. So God being God hinges on his immutability, the fact that he cannot change. We as creatures are, are becoming, but God as the creator is being with a capital B. He's not becoming, he is being. Now some of you might have objections. Wait, what about like, uh, God creating the universe. Doesn't that mean that he created the universe, which makes him a creator? He wasn't a creator before, but now he's a creator because he created. So by his sheer act of creating, doesn't that, doesn't that change him? Well, no. He doesn't change because he was creator even before he created. He was a redeemer even before he redeemed. He doesn't, he's not bound by time like we are. Wait, what about like Christ condescending, the second person of the Trinity? 
Well, that's not God changing. It's adding a, a nature, but the person is the second person. So God never changes. And that's him being God. And that is the ground by which we are not destroyed. And that is a great hope for us. Why? Because think about your week, this past week, these past two weeks, three weeks, a month, maybe even how you're doing right now. The matter of the fact is if our salvation depends on how we're doing well at that moment, it is hopeless. The ground by which we're standing, if, if, if that ground is our goodness, that will tumble down every week. Am I right? But the solid ground by which we are standing is not our goodness, but the goodness of the Lord never changing. Why were you not destroyed? Why are you not destroyed? Because God. Not you, because God. Because God being God. His attribute of being immutable. Friends, if you're not a Christian joining us today, though God's immutability, the fact that he doesn't change for Christians is a good news, for you, that's a bad news. You know why? Because when you stand under the judgment seat of God and God judges you, he's not going to change his mind. I was talking with one of my coworkers this past week, thinking about this text together with my coworker. He's not a, he's not a believer. I was thinking about, he grew up in a Roman Catholic home. He has Roman Catholic moral background and uprightness, but he doesn't profess Christ and he doesn't profess himself to be a Christian, but he believes in judgment. I asked him, if you stand in front of um, God in judgment day, what would you say? Do you think you deserve hell or heaven? He said, well, I'm not good enough, but I think I deserve heaven. And I said, why? Well, because my sins are justified. And I said, how is it justified? Well, he said, isn't that what we all do? We're not bad enough because we justify our sins all the time. We're bent towards justifying our sin. The reason why I did ABC is because I had reasons. I'm not a psychopath like them who kills human beings without any good reason. I have reasons of why I've sinned. So I deserve heaven. I don't deserve hell. A lake of fire for eternity? That doesn't make sense for me. Well, friends, I have bad news for you. It's not good enough. God unchanging is going to be a bad news for you when you die and when Christ returns. Because you for sure will be thrown into the lake of fire if you don't profess Christ. But the good news is that God's unchangingness can be a good thing for you if you profess Christ to be your Lord, treasure, and Savior. Friends, the good news that we believe as Christians is the fact that Christ came 2,000 years ago. The God-man condescending took on human flesh and he died on the cross when he didn't deserve to die. And he died on the cross for the sins of those who would repent. So friends, if you repent today and turn to trust in Christ, he will forgive you. God will forgive you. And his immutability will be a good thing for you, not a bad thing for you. 
So if you don't profess yourself to be a Christian, God is calling you to repent and turn to trust in Christ. If you still don't know what that means, talk with me or any of the people who are leading up here or talk with any of the members. We'll be happy to walk over what Christians believe and we'll be happy to um, share the gospel with you and walk with you in this journey. That'll be a good thing for both of us. So God's immutability is either good or bad, good for us because it's the ground by which we're not destroyed and second, for uh, unbelievers, it is, or those who are not Christians, it is bad news for you. So the nations will consider us fortunate. And that's not because of our goodness or faithfulness, but because of God's immutability. You're not destroyed. I'm not destroyed. And not because of us, but because of God. Now, continuing on in verse 7, God commands Israel in verse 7. What is the command in verse 7? He says, yes, he says, return, return to me and I will return to you. In other words, God is bringing an accusation to his people. He's saying, you have left me. You are no longer following me. That's a strong accusation. And the reason why that's a strong accusation is because you have to think about the context of Israelites. They were in a 70-year exile in the kingdom of Babylon, and they just returned to the promised land. They have um, formed and established the foundation of the temple, and they have formed the foundation of the wall, the Jerusalem wall. They're doing well, comparatively, and the sacrificial system back at it again. Yet the Lord charges and accuses them. What is the Lord's accusation? You have left me as they're building as they're sacrificing, God is saying, you have left me. A strong accusation. So the Israelites ask God, how can we return? Sure, maybe we have left you. How can you return? And God says in verse 8, halfway through, how do we how do we rob you, you ask? And he says, by not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. God is saying, stop robbing me. And you are robbing me by not bringing the full tenth to the Levites and the poor. See, God has established a system for Levitical priests to survive without working outside the temple. By commanding the entire Israelite camp to give tenth to the Levitical priests so that they might survive. But Israelites have stopped giving that tenth. The question is, I mean, look at verse 10. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse. What's the reason? So that there may be food in my house. Does the Lord need food? Does God need money? But why is he so obs obsessive about Israelites giving money, a tenth, a full tenth, if he doesn't need the money? Giving tenth was set up by God because humans' sinful tendency to disconnect gift to the giver. God set up system within the traditions of his nation to help them not forget God. I mean, think about the traditions that you have placed within maybe your own family or the traditions that you've grown up with. If they're Christians, they're setting up traditions within your household, within 
you setting up your traditions so that you might not forget God. What I do is I have family chapel almost every night, reading the big picture storybook Bible. Do I need to? Do I, should, like, must I do that? No, absolutely not. But it's a family tradition that I've set up so that we might not forget God, so that I might teach our kids about who God is that we believe in. In the same way, Israelites, God has set up a tradition of giving 10th so that they might not forget the Lord, even in their prosperity. One of those systems is giving a 10th to the priest. Israelites' attitude toward and the use of their possession is one indication of the health of the relationship, of their relationship with God. Saints, how you spend money reveals your value. You look at your budget this month, this past year, will communicate largely about what you value, your worldview, and what you don't value at the same time. Money is important because we spend money on what we value. That's why um, whenever we collect money for giving, we talk about scripture passage, that giving is an investment, that we're all investing in, in our time and our money to what is most valuable. So think about what you spend money on, your credit card bills, your checking accounts, so you might be able to find what you actually value. Now, look at verse 9. God is making another accusation here. He's saying, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. You are suffering under a curse, but you are still robbing me. What is the purpose of the curse there? God has cursed his people. And according to, when you look at verse 9, why has the Lord cursed them? What is the purpose of God cursing them? So that they might stop robbing God. It is a punishment, a consequence of people of God robbing God. So curse is not so that he can simply hurt us. It's so that affliction might turn us to righteousness. Think about Adam and Eve. Why why did God kick them out of Garden of Eden? Is it because God hates them, abhors them? Well, no, so that they might not live for eternity in their sin, that they might actually taste death because that is better for them. Curse from the Lord for believers, curse from the Lord is an affliction so that we might turn to the Lord, not to other things. Look at verse 10 with me again. So God is saying, return. How do you return? Stop robbing me. How do you stop robbing me? Bring the full tenth. And he says, after he says, bring the full tenth, he says, test me in this way. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. Do you sense, as you read, those, as you read that phrase, do you sense God's eagerness to give? He's saying, bring the full tenth, test me in this way. See if I won't give you my entire blessing and pour it out for you. I'm ready to bless you. I'm eager 
to bless you. His desire, brothers and sisters, isn't to take your joy away. It's actually to make your joy complete. So when he says, test me in this way, he's saying, test my faithfulness by your faith. I'm going to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to make your joy complete. But saints, we so often have such a small view of God, but a big view of this world, don't we? Our joy is so fickle, our sight and perception so narrow and short-sighted. It's kind of like looking at your MacBook, seeing a background picture of Yosemite and saying, look, Yosemite, when you're actually camping out in Yosemite, but not looking out to the grandeur of the Yosemite National Park. We're so easily entertained, easily rejoicing over the smallest things, but not seeing the grand joy that the Lord has prepared for us. The Lord wants himself to be tested. Now, if, if you're like me, you might be thinking this way. Wait, aren't we not supposed to test the Lord? Aren't we supposed to merely and simply trust the Lord? Why does the Lord say, test me in this way? Well, there's two ways of testing the Lord. We, we even sing, we didn't sing about it today, but we do sing about it in, um, I'm forgetting the name of the song. Sorry, I'll sing it. I won't sing it. I'll just say it. <laughs> oh, how, oh, how I trust. Tis I trust Jesus. Wait, no, what is it? Uh, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Thank you. We, we, we sing about it because even one of the lines is we've proved him over and over. We proved his faithfulness over and over. How do we test and prove his faithfulness over and over? By trusting him. We're testing his faithfulness by trusting him. A sinful way to test him that we ought not to test him by is saying, ah, he's not going to do it. He's not going to, a doubtful and disdainful way to trust or to test. So testing the Lord isn't always sinful or necessarily sinful. We test the Lord all the time by trusting in him. And we proved him over and over again of his faithfulness. And we've sang about it even as we sung, great is thy faithfulness. That God is faithful. He will continue to be faithful. And we can even point back to the fact that God never changed. And that's good news for us because his faithfulness never changes. An application to Christians. Give to the church. Increase your giving small. And man, so... I've talked about giving with when I was a little more immature and when I was younger in high school days, I used to talk about giving with a couple of church family members. And we used to laugh about how church is always asking for money. I don't know why church is talking about money. But we do talk about money because money is what God has given us as a resource to steward faithfully. So for us to call our church family to give to the church is actually a good call. Because we're investing as we give. And you are stewarding faithfully as you give. Now, some of you might be uh, tight on your budget. Actually, our church might need to give to you. Maybe you're in a season where you ought not to give, but receive help from the church. And that is legitimate. But one of the applications that I can give from this text is the fact that we ought to give to our church. 
If you're a Christian joining us from a different church, please give to your church. We don't need your money here. The best way to invest is for you to give to your own church. If you're not a Christian, we don't need your money. We just need your attention as we preach God's word here. But not only ought we to give money to the church, give your time to the church. Time and money are resources that God has given us, all of us. And we are to be faithful stewards of God's time and God's money. Maybe you can answer this question. Is Sunday gathering a highlight for you in your week? Is it something that you look forward to each day when we're scattered? Or is it something that just you go through as a motion? Maybe you should also consider giving time to church by coming to our evening gathering as we pray, seek to pray together and have a sweet time fellowshipping, fellowshipping with the church. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of priorities within our lives. We, we have to prioritize our family. We have to prioritize our work. We have to prioritize our school, our, our work at home. There's a lot of things that are going on. Yet you always should ask, what is my deepest priority? That is to the Lord. Everything shifts. But one of the two big factors within our priorities should be the church and the family. Give your time to your family, but also give your time to the church. Invest your time with the church, to the church, so you might grow together and you might guard other people and grow other Christian members as well. Now, if you're, if you're um, a non-Christian joining us today, I was thinking about what you might be thinking as I talk about money and time. You might be thinking, God seems too demanding. God, you require so much. You require Sunday mornings. You require not only Sundays, but my money as well. God's ways seem so suffocating and even too rigid. Now, a question that I want to ask you, if you're not a Christian thinking that, is isn't everything in our world fighting for our attention? I mean, think about it as you drive, you see billboards. That's fighting for your attention. Think about your cell phone lighting up. That's fighting for your attention. Think about your family members, your dad, your mom, your significant other, your children, books, work. Everything in this world is fighting for and demanding our attention. And don't we give our lives to some and not to some based on our value? Now, if God isn't that valuable, we ought not to give that much. But if God is infinitely valuable, then ought he not have the authority to command and demand all of us? Rather than some part of us, if God is infinitely valuable, doesn't he require, should not, ought he not to require all of us? All that is in us, our money, our time, our thought life, how we drive, how we work, everything about us. The reason why he demands the most is because he is infinitely valuable. Now, what about when you feel suffocated by God's demands? Question for you is, why do we have laws? Why do we have rules? It's so that we might have order and not chaos. 
A child might hate parental rules, but rules are good for their rules are for their good, isn't it? Now, what if your desires, as someone who's not professing Christ, what if your desires are destructive? God's rules are not suffocating, but perhaps your perception of God might be off. Because if your perception of God is that of a dictator, unloving, bigoted, then everything that comes from him might seem suffocating. But for us as Christians, we look at him as he's nothing but good to us in Christ, even in our afflictions, trials, and joys, and ups and downs. Everything is gained for us when we are in Christ because he can't help but to be good to us because we are in Christ. So his rules are not suffocating. His rules are actually good for us. It's to bring order out of chaos. So application to those who are not professing as Christians. His rules are not demanding. His rays are not suffocating. Perhaps your perception might need a major realignment. Now, lastly, let's look at verse 11. This is the promise that God makes. So the main command that we were thinking about was remember the instruction of Moses so that you may, so that you appropriately wait for God's judgment. First motivation is because you will be envied. You will be envied because God won't destroy you because of God's immutability. And because if you return, he will make you to be considered as fortunate from all the nations. The third is the fact that you will be a delightful land. Look at verse um, 11 and 12. It says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate because you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Now, think about verse 11 that promise is regarding people or land? Produce, fruit. It is regarding land. Now, when Adam sinned against the Lord, when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and before they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what was the curse that God gave or pronounced to Adam? Yes. That the land will produce what? Yes, thorns and thistles. Because man has sinned against the Lord, I will not only curse you, but you as a representative of the, my entire creation, the crown of life, I'm going to curse the entire world because you've sinned. And the land that you work from will produce thorns and thistles. But here, God says, I will cause your land to bloom. I will rebuke the devourer, and devourer can also be um, translated as locust. I will rebuke whatever is causing the curse in the land so that it will not ruin the produce, so that your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit. The curse will be reversed. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate because you will be a delightful land. And isn't it interesting that God doesn't say your land will be a delightful land, but you will be a delightful land. Church family, 
you will be a delightful land. Delightful land is where God dwells and God dwells with us by virtue of Holy Spirit, by virtue of God's word being given to us, by virtue of us, our names written in the book of life, by virtue of, uh, by, by virtue of, of us being Christians. So we will be delightful land. He sees, God sees Christ when he sees his bride, which is us. So the first motivation to remember was because we will be envied by all the nations. I don't think I have that much time, but I will continue. Um, Second motivation, uh, which is the last motivation, is because you will see the difference on the day of the Lord. That's verses 13 through the rest. I'll try to zoom past this. Now, remember the instruction of Moses. Second reason, because you will see the difference. If you're like me, when you talk about um, what you believe at your work, when you talk about your faith, when you try to gospelize your coworkers, they might have a perceived color lens in how they view you and even how they talk to you. When they talk about a sensitive issue about gender dysphoria or about a government law that just got passed, they might look to you and say, what what do you think? I know you're thinking something, kind of with a disdainful and an raised eyebrow. But brothers and sisters, even when you are mocked, remember the day of the Lord is coming. Because as you take a stand for the Lord winsomely, not haughtily, the Lord is going to come and he will judge. See, wicked doers, there are a couple of characteristics of an evil doer. Look at um, verse 13 and 14. It reads, God is making an accusation here again. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. And they're asking, how have we spoken or what have we spoken against you? The Lord is replying in verse 14. You said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements? Walking mournfully before the Lord of armies. Why do Israel living in Malachi's days think it's useless to serve God? Because their balance sheet of gains and losses don't add up. They're saying, we have, we've been following the Lord, but it seems like we're losing. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm focusing on the word gain. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. This is Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. He says, But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be lost in view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead." Apostle Paul's balance sheet is what we ought to realign our balance sheet to. 
That is, what we've considered as gain before we were Christians and what we now consider as gain are turned upside down. That it is far more superior gain to know Christ rather than fill in the blank. Anything. It is far superior gain to know Christ than to fill in the blank. Knowing Christ is the supreme gain. But in Malachi's days, Israelites weren't thinking that because they were saying, look at the, look at the wickedness. Look at those who are committing evil and wicked and heinous acts against you. You're not the judge. You're not even judging them. But they're prospering, God. Why should we follow you when we're not prospering? God says, following me is gain. Even if you lose your entire world, your entire life, following me and knowing Christ is superior gain. Now, the wicked people, unrighteous people, are, are testing God and even escaping. They're prospering. They're not waiting for God's promise of future prosper, prosperity. The wicked are, are testing God and escaping. Maybe um, you've escaped before. Whenever I think about the concept of escape, I'm always, most of the time, I'm thinking about um, me when I was a kid. Because I got away with a lot because I was the weaker one, the skinny one, and my brother was much bigger than me. So whenever I do something wrong, I can just kind of wiggle my way throughout because I'm the youngest one. But saints, we can't escape God. Saints, do you know that tomorrow is not guaranteed? but judgment is. Tomorrow might not come, but the day of the Lord is guaranteed. When things will burn in fire, when Christ returns, that day is guaranteed, though tomorrow is not. No one will escape the judgment of God. They might escape now, but they won't be able to escape when the day of the Lord comes. An application for us is to think about whether our words are harsh. And that's coming from verse 13, God's accusation. His accusation is your words against me are harsh, but harsh can also be translated as strong and arrogant. Maybe you've thought this, you don't love me. God, you don't love me. You're not good to me. I hate my life. I wish I was there and not here. You're not good enough, God. You're not satisfying enough. You can't protect me. You don't know what's best for me. You're not with me. You're silent and you are actually against me. Saints, words are outflow of our thought life, which is an outflow of what we perceive to be true. The reality that we see is how we're thinking and that comes out in our mouth. 
Faith is being able to see the reality according to God's word. So think whether your words are harsh by even what you're thinking. Think about how your thoughts even might be arrogant towards the Lord and not believing in what the Lord says in his word. Look at verse 17 with me. This is a promise that the Lord gives to those who are fearing the Lord. Verse 17 reads, They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. What I wanted our church to be reminded of is the fact that those who fear the Lord, those who are believers, our names won't be erased or God's name on us won't be erased. We are his possession. My favorite Disney movie is Toy Story. I cried so many times watching Toy Story 3 and 4. It just brings me to tears each time. As I think about it, I'm still crying. <laughs> and the reason why I cry each time is because Woody is transferring between owners. Under his boot, he used to say Andy. But that name was erased. But God's name on our boots won't be erased. No matter what you do. Saints, you might have had the toughest week. Even in your rock bottom, the Lord says, you are my treasure possession. I will never let you go. And being possessed by the Lord as his treasure possession is such a big comfort. Because he won't let us go. Sorry, I can't believe I'm crying because I'm thinking about <laughs> Toy Story. <laughs> oh, man. Last thing that I want to talk about. I have to wrap things up because it's just getting too long. The main command, sorry, I'm kind of, I'm kind of skipping um, almost my second point. I will maybe preach next time on the second point again. But the main command from the sermon text today was remember instruction of Moses. But when you think about the instruction of Moses, what pops up into your mind? Maybe it's you're thinking the Pentateuch, Torah, God's law. It's the law by which Israelites functioned in the old covenant. In the old covenant, there were stipulations of the law or stipulation of that covenant. They were going to continue in that covenant as long as they followed that stipulation, requirements written from the book of Moses, God giving them commands. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 18 says. It says this. This is before entering the promised land, Moses speaking. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Saints, we have a prophet infinitely greater than Moses. According to the author of Hebrews, he gave himself as the atoning sacrifice on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And not only did he secure God's pleasure in us, but he also secured us new hearts. Our new hearts are blood-bought. We don't remember merely the instruction of Moses, but we remember Christ crucified. We no longer belong to the old covenant, but to the new covenant, which which comes with better mediator, better promise. Christ crucified for our sins. Our status before God as saints bought with his blood. Our spirit-enabled life bought with his blood. Our brand new hearts bought with his blood. So saints, remember Christ crucified so that you may wait appropriately for the king's return. Let me close with the word of prayer. Father, we pray that Christ might be cherished within our hearts as we have looked at Malachi 3 to 4. I know that your word does not return void. And I understand that your word either softens or hardens. But that you would, that you would continue to soften our hearts as we hear your word. That we would tremble at your word. That we would remember Christ crucified so that we may appropriately wait for the king's return. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys.